Hello and welcome to Impact Quantum, a podcast about quantum computing for developers and engineers. In this episode, Frank and Andy welcome our first guest to the show. Dr. Mark Jackson is a quantum evangelist at Cambridge Quantum Computing, which may just be the best job title I have ever heard. This episode is entitled What and Why Quantum Computing? and is rated one and a half Schrodinger's. It could be two Schrodinger's or just one. You will have to observe the entire episode to collapse the wave function. Now on with the show. But, first, here's some dubstep. Hello and welcome to Impact Quantum the podcast where we explore this new field of quantum computing from an engineer's perspective. Maybe you're a software engineer, maybe you're a data engineer, but you keep hearing about this thing called quantum computing, which is going to change everything. And I happen to believe that it will change everything. And to that end, I um, a, I have my uh, trusty co-host from Data Driven with me, Andy Leonard. Hey, Frank, thanks for, uh, for bringing me along. As uh, folks will quickly learn, you know way more about quantum computing than I do. <laughs> so I guess I'm just here for my pretty face. Of course, of course. We are actually recording this in video on Teams. But um, with me, with us, for the first time in Impact Quantum's history, uh, we have a guest. And it's Dr. Mark Jackson, uh, who has probably the coolest job title I have heard in about a decade or two. Welcome to the show, Mark. You're our first guest ever. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be here. Uh, so as Andy said, uh, you know, I do when I, you know, I would use the term knows more uh, as a very relative term. Um, part of the if you're listening to the show, and you've listened to the archives. Part of the reason why we haven't had a lot of shows is because I really kind of hit my cerebral limit at the time to talk about. So um, given that quantum is still a relatively new field and there's a shortage of experts in the field, uh, but I think. Uh, you know, we were, I was uh, blessed to uh, get in contact with Mark, where we can talk about kind of this with an expert, uh, because he's a quantum evangelist. Yes, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And I am Cambridge Quantum's quantum evangelist. I'm glad you like my title. It's, uh, it's pretty unique. That is very cool. Um, so, so what, uh, you know, what does a, first off, how did you get into to, to quantum? What's your background? Is your background in quantum physics? Or computing. My background or... is in yes. So my background is actually in superstring theory. If you're interesting, with that. yeah. For 15 years, I did that. Uh, I earned my PhD in string theory from Columbia University under the supervision of Brian Green, who you might oh. recognize. Yes. And in fact, he's the I one whose documentaries on string theory I I do enjoy watching. Yes, I, I'm actually in that. Uh, I have a very brief cameo. I was a student, and and half my face is in it for half a second. Oh, very cool. Very <laughs> cool. That's awesome. You're a real so, uh, so So, yes, that was my moment of fame uh, back when I was a grad student. And so then I, I did research in that area for about 10 years. And I briefly did a tech startup doing scientific fundraising before I returned to teaching at Singularity University. And that was where I first started hearing about quantum computing. This would be around 2016. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so quantum computing only existed academically when I was a student. And so I, I rarely heard anything at all about it. And it was in 2016, people started talking about quantum computing being commercially feasible. And I thought this was amazing because it was all the things that I, I loved about physics, 
superposition and entanglement and, and all these crazy physics concepts, um, they, they started saying that they could actually build machines and do this for useful things. And I thought that was amazing. And so I started trying to get into the field. I was giving presentations about quantum computing to executives, but I felt sort of like a cheerleader on the sides. I, I actually wanted to be doing it, not just talking about it. And so I, I tried to get into the field and it was a bit frustrating because I didn't have a background in quantum computing and I didn't know too many people in it. But I was very lucky that a friend of mine, uh, a math professor at Berkeley where I was living, he made an introduction to our CEO, Ilias Khan. And it was very well timed because Cambridge Quantum was about three years old and everyone at the time was in the UK. Uh, as the name might suggest, we're yeah, I wasn't Cambridge, sure England. if it was Cambridge, England or Cambridge, Massachusetts, because it could go either way. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually the old school Cambridge. Uh, mm -hmm. Our our company's origin story is is quite amazing. Ilias was chairman of the Stephen Hawking Foundation. Oh, and in, in 2014, Hawking told him, I think quantum computing is going to take off. You should get into this business. And so that's how we started, because of Stephen Hawking. That's amazing. And so, yeah, we, we have one of the coolest origin stories ever. And so in fall of 2017, I, I joined as one of the first American members of the team. And so I've, I've been there about four years and it's been an amazing journey. Uh, I, I can't think of any other technology that's advanced this rapidly. I, I will say it's just even in the last maybe eight to 10 months, the pace of innovation has, has gone through the roof. Like you, you start hearing these news and you know, whenever I would look on YouTube for, you know, recent videos and you filter by like, you know, you'd have to look by like, oh, in the recent month for quantum, anything about quantum computing. Now it's to the point where something new gets published every couple hours. Like it's, 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 it's just exploded. Yeah, it's, it's almost every week we, some, mm -hmm. we see some new major announcement about uh, there's a new commercial project, there's a new company being founded, there's a new investment, there's, there's some new technological advance. Uh, it really is developing very quickly. It's tough to keep up with with everything. When I started four years ago, I remember some of my physics friends being a little skeptical. Was quantum computing really a thing? Was this a wise career decision? A and no, no one is questioning it now. Um, there, there's <laughs> so so much money and so much talent being right. put into this. Uh, it, it really is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because you, you know, you'd said you didn't have a background in you know, when you when you look to get into this in quantum computing. But I'm thinking, like, who does? I mean, there are people, obviously, but I mean, I could probably, I mean, going back maybe the 2014 when when Stephen Hawking kind of um, had his, you know, had his say and created your, you know, kind of inspired the launch of your company. I would say there's probably maybe a dozen people worldwide would 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 be in quantum computing, at least commercialization of it, and not just the research. So I find that I find that interesting because a lot of folks, when they look to 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 get into a new career, even though I guess technically it, it, you're you're still heavy in 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 the deep sciences, I would call it. You know, people still you, you know with your pedigree, uh, having worked under uh, Brian Green. And even being in one of his documentaries, even if it's for a half a second, um, I mean, you face that challenge. So I think, I think, it, I think for anyone here who's looking to transition into a quantum career, know that you know you are going to face skepticism. But I also think that there will be an inflection point, and Mark can tell me this has happened now, 
where the demand is going to be far outstrip the supply, that as long as you kind of know more than the average uh, Joe or Jane on the street, I think that there's still a good opportunity. That's right. You are correct that even a few years ago, there were very few people doing quantum computing uh, as a specialty. So quantum computing was first suggested about 40 years ago by Richard Feynman, this physicist, when he pointed out that there were a lot of problems that we never could hope to solve using normal computers. And a prime example is, is chemistry. Doing molecular simulations is very difficult for a computer. We can only simulate only the very simplest molecules. And so he, he pointed out we have to build a new type of computer, one based on quantum physics. This was about 40 years ago, and no one knew how to do this at any feasible level. And so there was, there was academic progress. So research labs and such would work on this, but it wasn't anywhere close to being commercialized um, for, for many years. And then it was, it was around 2014 that started to change. So it's only in the past few years that quantum information science, the academic term for this, really emerged. Um, so there are now several universities offering degrees in quantum information sciences, but, uh, but that's a relatively new development. Most of the people, kind of the older people, just had to pick it up on the street. Um, they were they were either physics professors, so like very few people who who really did this, or they're people who came from other areas of, of science and technology who were able to pick up enough. Uh, for example, I'm not even on the scientific team. I'm on the business team. So even mm -hmm. though my background is in theoretical physics, I actually don't know enough that I could be a scientist in this area. Interesting. Interesting. I, I see a lot of parallels with um, kind of how traditional computer science had kind of evolved, right? First, you had to be an electrical engineer or have that kind of a pedigree. Um, then, then, you know, as computational or computer science kind of came out to its own as an ac separate ap academic discipline, you know, there was, there, you know, it kind of evolved from there. And I, I see, you know, Obviously, we're we're pretty early, so we don't know how the movie's going to end. But I kind of seen the story structure before, in that regard. Yeah, that that's actually a very good analogy. The computers that we have now look a lot like the computers from the '50s and '60s, in that they're they're these big machines in in big rooms with wires hanging out, and you do have to be a specialized engineer fiddling with things, and and it changes on a day to day basis which parts are working or not. Things are, are very experimental. They're very expensive to use. Um, only a few people really know how to use them. There are some differences in that uh, back then you had to be physically there next to the machine, whereas now we have the internet. So fortunately, people can access it from, from anywhere. Which is great uh, in the pandemic. Which, which is great during the pandemic, that, that we can access these quantum computing machines. But, but they are still experimental, and engineers have to be on site to fiddle with things. In a few years, though, that probably won't be the case. There will be a few people uh, specialized in them, but a lot of people will be able to use them without having to be an expert in them. Right. So, I mean, there's definitely this this evolution that's happening, and it's it seems to be picking up pace. But what's interesting is that you said something that that uh, I'm curious about is that quantum information science was only uh, developed in the last four or five years. But wasn't Shor's algorithm and a lot of these things kind of worked out in the 90s or, or late 80s? Like what, and that question, my question then is, what constitutes quantum information science? Yes, so, so people certainly did do this, but there were very few of them. 
-hmm. and they usually were they were experts in other things. They didn't focus exclusively on quantum computing or, or quantum information science. So, right. so yes. So, so Peter Shore, who I think was at Bell Labs, I, I could be mistaken, but for some reason I think that he's now at MIT. He's the one who came up with Shore's algorithm and and has done some other things. Um, but I don't think he spent all his time just doing quantum computing. Whereas now, that that's a this is a full time occupation. There's people who specialize just in this. Fair enough. So the field existed, but it wasn't really big enough that you you know you'd get your own department and your own degree. And I now I understand what you mean. Right, right. Um, because because there there were no quantum computers, so it, so there right. wasn't much point in uh, in doing this full time. Yeah. Right, <laughs> that makes sense. There's nothing to do because it doesn't exist yet. Um, it reminds me of a Dilbert cartoon from like the mid '90s, where he's like, you know, he goes, I, "I know everyone wants to work on this project called personal multimedia devices because." It sounds really cool, and it's so futuristic. There's actually no work yet. Um, so, but then again, I mean, you you kind of look around. You, you know, if you look at cell phones, you know, they are personal multimedia devices. So, I think it just fascinates me how quickly this evolved. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't it Shor's algorithm that was kind of like this light bulb moment, certainly in the national security kind of uh, crowd? Um, yes, that, that's my understanding. That. Uh... That people had talked about quantum computers, but they didn't really know what, other than chemistry, what could you really do with it? And Shore apparently, he worked on this problem for about a year in secret, from what I understand, because he didn't think it was actually going to be solved. And uh, and so, so for those of you who are unfamiliar with this, Shore found a way to use quantum computers to efficiently factor large numbers into constituent primes. So you could use a quantum computer to figure out what prime numbers you need to multiply together to get some given number. And the, the reason that you would want to do this is because this is the basis for a lot of cryptography. The RSA encryption algorithm is based on the fact that this is normally very difficult for computers to do. And so Shore discovered that it's very efficient for quantum computers to do if you had a sufficiently powerful quantum computer. And so the, this was the first useful quantum algorithm and I, I think he did this around 91 or so. Um, back then, of course, we didn't have quantum computers, but it did make national security type people pay attention because they realized that there could be a threat at some point in the future. And now there's very much a threat from this. People are, are very concerned about this and are actively taking steps to protect against this type of hacking. So yes, I think uh, Shor's algorithm was the first useful thing discovered for a quantum computer. Interesting. Yeah, because I remember the, the there was some guidance uh, from some national cybersecurity. I live in the D.C. area, so um, that basically saying, hey, you probably should prepare for a quantum computer. And they said this, you know, maybe 2017. And all of us kind of, in you know, the, the, the regular nerds and engineers, like, you know, we're like, what do they know? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> it, it's easy to be dismissive of it. And right. And Today's quantum computers still can't do that type of hacking. But the reason that their advice was correct was for two reasons. The first is that it takes time to make this upgrade. So, so people have developed what are called post-quantum encryption algorithms. So it's different mathematical formulas, which we don't think quantum computers could hack. And so you can, you can change your encryption algorithms to be based on these new mathematics. And that process takes time. It's installing a lot of software. And if you've ever worked for a large company or a government agency, you know that that's a government agency. A yeah. long, a long time, months and years. So, so that's the first right. reason. The second reason I would suggest starting early is because 
there are rumors that bad actors and governments are archiving things right now so that in mm. a few years they could decipher it using quantum computers if they were advanced enough. And so for those two reasons, I, I would strongly encourage anyone listening who's in a position to do so to, to upgrade to post-quantum encryption. Interesting. I've, Interesting. Been, I've been really impressed with uh, this whole idea of people kind of figuring out quantum theory or uh, problems that quantum computing can solve before quantum computers even existed. I mean, that just that's just amazing to me. It is amazing, and we still don't know the answer. Um, so I think you're probably familiar with this whole PNP type. I was going to uh, ask type, about yeah, that. So type is that, yeah. yeah. So 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 mathematicians have have for a long time concerned themselves with how difficult certain problems are, and so they've invented all these categories of how difficult problems are. And factoring numbers is a perfect example. It's yeah. easy to multiply numbers together and get an answer. It's very efficient and straightforward. But going the other way, given a number, it's it's not very efficient to figure out the prime numbers. You can and always so put more salt in the soup, but you can't take the salt out of the soup once it's in there. Exactly. So there's a, there's a world of problems, and, and there's problems that are easy to check that they're right, like Sudoku. It's very easy to confirm if someone gives you a solution to check. It's easy to check if that is a correct solution but it's difficult to figure out what that correct solution was if you didn't have it given to you. And so, so mathematicians have invented all these classes of difficulty for different problems. And now quantum computing has stirred things up because there's problems that are, are very difficult for a classical computer to solve, but they're easy for a quantum computer. And there's problems that are still difficult for a quantum computer. And so, so now we have all these other new categories and the boundaries aren't always clear. For example, we, thought that we had an understanding of problems that were uh, difficult on normal computers and easy on quantum computers. And then a very smart grad student a few years ago figured out that being inspired by a quantum computer led them to invent a new solution for a classical computer, which was just as fast. Wow. O overturning a lot of what the our biases about what was difficult and what was not. So clearly we have a lot to learn about the difficult and easy problems for quantum computing. So is that quantum-inspired computing? Because I'm seeing that term pop up more and more. Yeah, yeah. So quantum-inspired is, is becoming a popular term because even though we don't have super powerful quantum computers yet, just this way of thinking has led us to think of new approaches. Now is that, that that is fascinating and there's so much to unpack there. I don't think we'll get it all in one show, but um, quantum-inspired algorithms. Now, do they run on so so one of the, my first exposure I've heard of quantum computing but my first like aha moment was at an internal Microsoft conference which was also had another aha moment there a few years back but ultimately um, ultimately it was kind of this discussion on what quantum can do now the thing that blew my mind was that there was this notion of simulating quantum computers on conventional hardware now I've read things that kind of confuse me because uh, it's not that hard to confuse me in this space. Um, but um, is quantum inspired algorithms mean that there's a, a simulated quantum computer on, 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 on conventional or is there this a third class altogether? They're, yeah, they're, they're similar sounding, but they're actually distinct concepts. So, so there are quantum simulators. So what a quantum computer does really is it just does a lot of matrix calculations and then it measures the qubits and you get 
binary output. And so that that's something that you could do on a normal computer. You can set up a big linear algebra system and you can add some linear operators and then you just measure things and you see what the output is. So you can do this on a classical computer, but it takes a lot of time to do all these operations. Whereas on a quantum computer, nature does all of them for you. Right. And and so this is what we do often when we're when we're building and testing quantum programs. We actually do them on simulators on classical computers because quantum hardware is very expensive right now and it's not very powerful. You can simulate up to about 30 qubits on a laptop and you could do up to about 40 qubits on a supercomputer. And that might sound a little funny because 40 doesn't sound like that much more than 30. So why does it take a whole supercomputer just to get those extra 10 qubits? And the reason is because remember for every qubit that you add, you're doubling the number of configurations that you're considering. So adding uh, adding just 10 qubits means it's a thousand times, it's two to the 10, more configurations. And a supercomputer is about a thousand times more powerful than a laptop. And so that's that's why. So yes, for simple programs, you can pretend like you're using a quantum computer when you're actually just using a normal computer. Um, and, and that is what we do now a lot of the time. But eventually we will want to use real quantum computers because that's where the power is, because they could do things that we never could hope to have solved using normal computers. Right, right. The the aha moment I had when I first heard about this was the notion that if there was a problem that would computationally take 10,000 10, years worth of compute, uh, a quantum computer could do it in you know maybe 60 seconds, but a conventional computer simulating a quantum computer could do it in about 10 months. Now, while 10 months is still a lot longer than, um, uh, you know, 90 seconds. Um, it's still a heck of a lot faster than 10,000 years. <laughs> yes, precisely. So sometimes just thinking about the problem in a quantum-like way might lead right. us to some more efficient approach or something. Um, but unfortunately, you can't, you can't trick nature. You can't uh, make the classical computer behave like a quantum computer, right. at least not at a powerful level. Can only do 30 or 40 qubits that reality is awfully pers persistent <laughs> yeah one, of, so, one so, of the things i've read about just kind of listening you know and i'm again on the periphery of this and and fascinated um is there are some uh ish, specific issues that we're dealing with now and one of them that i've heard about uh is noise and there's apparently these are very noisy and and determining the values is impacted by this uh, pretty greatly. Can you speak to that? Sure. So we do often talk about the noise of quantum computers. And just to clarify, that doesn't mean the actual loudness of the machine. Uh, I've, I've had people ask me, are, are they just loud? No, when we talk about the noise, what we're referring to is the qubits, the quantum bits, the fundamental ingredient here. Those, these are quantum systems, and so they're very fragile. They're very easily um, disturbed, and then they lose their quantum properties, which that's what's responsible for all this magic. And, uh, and so what we, and a very important characteristic is how accurate these qubits are and how long they can last, how long they can maintain their quantum properties. So when we talk about noise, what we mean is how likely are they to make a mistake and give the wrong answer? 
and there are lots of sources of noise. So it could just be the, the ambient environment. And this is why some approaches in quantum computing, like superconducting, they keep the qubits very, very cold near absolute zero because just the, the usual thermal jitters disturb the qubits. Another source of noise are the neighboring qubits. So you want the qubits to interact at some level because that's where interesting things happen with interactions, but you don't want them interacting when you don't want them interacting. I know that sounds like a tautology, but but yeah, you want to control the interactions. And so so there's, there's a lot of potential sources of, of noise there. And so right now they work most of the time, but not all of the time. What we would like to do is get the noise down enough that we can use something called quantum error correction. And this is where we very cleverly spread the information of one qubit among several qubits. And it was actually Peter Shore, the same Peter Shore as Shore's algorithm. He was the one who came up with the first quantum error correction scheme. And this, this might not sound so dramatic because we do error correction for normal computers. So why is it so different for a quantum computer? The reason it's so different is with a normal computer, Doing error correction is very straightforward. You simply make three copies of a bit. So instead of having one bit with your information, you just triplicate it. And so then if one bit happens to do something wrong, if it happens to go from a zero to a one or vice versa, that's okay. You just take the majority. And so as, as long as it's unlikely that a bit flips, then the majority will usually represent the correct answer. And so that's that's all you need to do, right? But here's why you can't do that with a quantum computer. Quantum physics has this rule that you can't duplicate quantum information. You can move it around, but you can't make mm. a copy of it. And you can't even measure it without disturbing it. And so there's no way to make that duplication. So you can't do the triplication. And you can't even measure it to see if something's wrong. So, wow. so if, if, if you had told me that quantum error correction was impossible, I actually would have believed you. Fortunately, Peter Shore is much, much smarter than I am. He found a very clever way to spread the information of a qubit among several qubits. And then by measuring these auxiliary qubits, you can determine whether there's a mistake. And if there is, correct it. And you can do this all without measuring the original qubit. And so, yeah, it's it's really amazing and clever how it's done. And, but, but it actually, the mathematics of this was worked out some time ago. And so there is a way to do this quantum error correction. But the problem is that by adding more qubits to do this, if the likelihood of one qubit failing is high, that means the likelihood of several qubits failing is even higher. So unless the error rate is very low to begin with, you've actually made the problem worse, not better. And so this is why we need the, the error rate to be really small to use error correction. And right now we can't quite do that. We're just on the verge. So about two months ago, Honeywell and Google published articles in which they took the first steps of doing this. They demonstrated this in, in very simple cases. So we are starting to do this. What we would like is that we just do this for all the qubits all the time when we run programs. So yeah, so uh, so that that's the path that we're on. Interesting. So when Google or D-Wave say they have a thousand qubit system, there's 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 this distinction because of the errors and the error correction. There's a distinction between logical qubits and physical qubits. Is that correct? Th that's correct. So th there is a difference between them. Um, so physical qubit, as the name implies, is the actual qubit there on the quantum computer. The logical qubit is how much information is stored. And so when we 
have one logical qubit, that might be spread over several uh, physical qubits. And so that's the, that's the cost of doing error correction, is that you need many more physical qubits to represent one logical qubit. Uh, since you mentioned D-Wave, I should probably point out an important distinction. The D-Wave quantum computers are what are called annealing, quantum annealing or simulated annealing. And so even though they're called qubits, they behave in a very different way than the gate-based approach to quantum computing that Google or IBM or Honeywell or other groups use. Um, in those approaches, you can control the individual qubits, whereas in the annealing approach, you have all the qubits kind of behaving together and you don't get to control the behavior of any individual one. So it's, it's uh, annealing is suited for one specific problem, whereas gate-based approach, you have much more control over the qubits and you can apply a variety of different programs. Interesting. Yeah, so one of the other things that I read about um, that's I guess relatively recent, I'm not positive of this, is um, is a silicon-based uh, qubit solution. Is that one of the ones you were just talking about? Is that annealing or the other? It's it's gate-based, yes. Um, okay. So, so uh, I believe D-Wave and Fujitsu are the two groups using the annealing-based approach. The other companies that, that uh, you're probably familiar with uh, use the gate-based approach in which you can control the different qubits. There's a lot of ways to build those qubits. Um, and so, so silicon is one, um, superconducting is one, ion trap is one, photonic is one. So there's a lot of technologies that you can use to do that, but you can represent them all by these, these circuit diagrams you might have seen where you have qubits flowing from left to right and you act upon them with different gates. Um, and, and these are all matrix operations and, and such, yeah. Very cool. Interesting. So annealing, what is that just kind of, it takes the average of, of, of kind of a bunch of qubits and you just kind of measure yes. that? Yes. So, so in the annealing approach, you encode your mathematical problem. So it's one specific problem called cubo, quantum, or sorry, quadratic unconstrained binary optimization. Mm -hmm. And so if you happen to have that type of mathematical problem, you can encode your problem in the couplings between the qubits, and then you allow the system to find the lowest energy configuration. And that will that will depend upon these couplings that you've set. And the solution that it comes up with will be the solution to your problem. I sometimes oh. joke it's it's a bit like a Ouija board where you <laughs> you you ask you ask the question and then the, the Ouija board uh, you know kind of produces the answer for you. Uh, you don't supposedly control the, the device on the Ouija board. Um, the answer just sort of appears before you. And so it's, it's a bit like that in that you set up the couplings how you wish, and then you, you ask it to go to the lowest energy configuration, and that's the answer to your problem. Huh. Interesting. Well, this is, know, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, th what's curious to me about this, uh, it's just it's, it's fascinating. All of this is fascinating to me. And again, I've kind of read the pop sci versions of, you know, of what's going on. I don't understand the math. I do understand some of the problem classes when we talk, um, you know, uh, the PNP and, and that. And it's very interesting to me that you're the first person I've heard say that there are problems even beyond what we're talking about being able to solve with, with quantum computing. The, the, the couple of things that just come to mind 
But one of them is this idea of being able to do, it's like follow all of the paths, all of the permutations simultaneously. And, and you know, that just, that's just something that I, I don't get, but it's not, I, I accept it. I'm not arguing with it, but it just seems like, okay, you know, as a traditional electronics engineer, I'm used to looking, you know, measuring the output of the transistor. And if it crosses this threshold, it's a one. And if it's below that threshold, it's a zero. And trying to think about just, it, it's almost, it's not magic, but it's using the fabric of the universe to allow us to do things like try all of the, the paths in the maze at once. <laughs> you know, just, I don't, I don't know if you wanted to speak to, to any of that and, and help me out, help me get my mind around it a little bit more. Sure, sure. Uh, what you've described is true. In, in fact, it's very literally true that, that in quantum computing, it takes all the paths. This is actually the, the core of quantum physics, and it's so unfamiliar to us uh, in our in our day to day lives that it, that it can seem it, it seems crazy, but this is actually how nature works. When things happen, to us it seems like there's one reality, like one right. thing has happened. We throw a ball up and it goes up a little ways and then it comes back down. So the ball has a very definite position at each moment in time. But what quantum physics teaches us is that that's actually not quite true. When we do something, the ball will take every single possible path, no matter how crazy. That that means it flies to the moon and back, it flies to outer space, it splits apart. Like every possible thing in that, so every atom in that ball will do every crazy conceivable thing. The reason we don't see all those things is that all of them cancel each other out except one configuration. And that one that's left is the one that we call classical physics. That's what I, that's what Newton would have written down. Right. And and that's that's seems a little strange. How do they cancel each other out? And so this this is why quantum physics works. It's that each of those possibilities has what's called a phase to it. So it's it's like a complex number, right? The the complex circle. Each of those configurations has a little arrow pointed attached to it. And what happens is that all of the non-classical solutions, the arrows cancel each other out. They're in opposite directions. There's only one solution of all of those that doesn't get canceled out. And that's what we call classical physics. And so this is why for most of our lives, we can be completely unaware of quantum physics because we just see one reality and that's the classical physics version. Yeah. When we do quantum computing, we are including every single possibility there and most of them will cancel out the correct answer will emerge so for example when we do quantum machine learning problems when we uh when we give it a problem and then we we measure the output we get sort of a histogram of different solutions and okay. hopefully the correct solution is the one that peaks Gotcha. There's there still maybe some of the wrong solutions mixed in there a little bit, and that's why we usually run the program several times, like a thousand times right. to get a smooth histogram. But yeah, this is what we're doing with a quantum computer is that we're actually looking at all of these possibilities. And hopefully, the, if, if the program is written correctly, the correct answer will be the peak of that. But there still may be some some little clutter of the wrong solutions in there. That's so fascinating to me. That, yeah. 
It's yeah, probabilistic. That's, that's, that, that, that's exactly right. That's the trade-off. Quantum computers can do things faster, but you're not 100% guaranteed to get the correct answer. Interesting. That is very interesting. It's amazing to me that, you know, all of this stuff was proposed in, in math by physicists 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago. They were doing the math and they were able to see, hey, there's this possibility. And, and then when they started looking at stuff, they, you know, they started getting these results that didn't fit any classical model. And, and it was, I, I understand just from reading a little bit of the history that a number of people didn't accept it. You know, they just really smart people looked at the outcomes and said, this makes no sense. And, but the math was telling them, yes, this is what will happen. And it just, it's fascinating. Quantum tunneling and, and all of that. And what's super cool about this now is people who work in this field like you, uh, Mark, you're, you're seeing these results. You're able to measure it and see it do these things and, and then come back with data that you then form into a histogram looking for the right answer or a close enough answer. And then you're applying some more math to it, probable probability math, and, and coming out with the answer. That is just incredible, I think. It is incredible, um, and, and what you said is, is flattering. I'm I'm not uh, one of the ones programming them or, or building them. It's uh, fortunately left to people much smarter than myself. Um, but well, I, you understand it, I, though. I mean, you've got that background in theoretical physics, and my goodness, you work with you know Brian Green, who's a scary smart and a good communicator, which is a nice combination. Uh, <laughs> he, he and you're a great communicator too. So, you know, I I really appreciate the. Uh, you know, the, you know, just the explanations of it, because you're explaining this where even I can understand it. And hopefully that means that most of our audience can pick this up as well. So. Thank you. So another a question here, and this is a question I get a lot, and I don't really know how to answer that. How do you debug a quantum program? That's an excellent question. And, and it's a subtle point that a lot of people don't acknowledge because we just take for granted when we write normal programs that we can peek inside and track the value of variables so that if something is going wrong we can identify exactly where the mismatch is in quantum computers you don't get to do that because you don't get to peek inside at the values of the qubits you initialize the qubits and then you perform the operations and then you measure them but in between the initialization and the measurement the qubits are in these superpositions and entanglements and any attempt to peek inside spoils it and so what we do is we we run them on simulators. So this is where, where simulators come in. So using a classical computer, we mimic a quantum system, but we, we allow ourselves to peek inside and see where something is going wrong. Interesting. So that's how you do it, but you couldn't do real debugging on a proper quantum computer. You couldn't do real debugging because actually trying to determine the value of the qubit will spoil it. it, it we say it collapses the wave function and, right. and eliminates the quantum properties. Wow. So then the the future of making supercomputers is probably bright, so you could do debugging. Because <laughs> right, what if you, you know, if you, if let's just say we had a 60 qubit system um, and you wanted to do some debugging or maybe even unit testing, um, <laughs> You would have to have some kind of supercomputer. You couldn't just get away with just a quantum, at least as we understand it now. I mean, that... you would. 
yeah, you you would have to run some subset of your program on a quantum, oh, okay. on, on a on a simulator. So if you can identify that the problem is happening in these twenty qubits, then then you could run that on a simulator and, and identify where the problem is. Wow. Okay. So so in terms of um, career opportunities in this space, and I think this is the thing that excites me the most. Obviously, um, you know. What are your thoughts in and that? Because I think I think it, it it's I think that quantum for the near term will, will kind of be a separate ecosystem. Eventually it'll all collapse and it'll all be one big kind of tech industry, but I don't see that happening um for at least maybe two decades. That's kind of my gut feel. We are struggling a bit to hire people because you do right. have to have such specialized knowledge and it's only in the past few years that that universities are starting to offer this as a specialized area. Most of the hires that we've done for the, for the younger generation, um, yeah, they, they've often come from other areas, closely related areas uh, like physics, mathematics, computer science. But um, yeah, we, we can't always expect that they have a specialized degree in, in quantum computing or, or quantum information science. And, and I, I might add, even the business people like myself, as I mentioned, I'm on the business side of the company. Right. Even us often have backgrounds in, in science. Um, other people on, on the business development team with myself, uh, one has a PhD in chemistry, one has a PhD in nanotechnology. And so, so we've joked that even our salespeople have PhDs in science. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. The, we've heard that in the past there have been these winners where – we hit the wall of you know technology and science of the day, and we just can't get break through that until there's some more advanced uh, technology developed. There's more theory that's proposed, and all of that. Is that something on the horizon? Are we there now? I'm not aware of any wall. There are challenges, okay. but people seem confident that that they can work through them. We have quantum computers. So if you had told me 40 years ago that quantum computing is a nice idea, but we would never be able to build them, I, I would have believed you. I think a lot of people were skeptical, yeah. um, even even up to about seven years ago. But now we do have quantum computers. In fact, a lot of people that I speak to, they still don't believe that. I think it's kind of a boy who cried wolf type effect because <laughs> they had heard they had heard for so many years that quantum computers are 10 years away and they don't they don't understand that that we actually have them now they can do problems they can solve problems that are difficult for normal computers to do but they're not quite impossible um uh so yeah it's uh th there is kind of a misunderstanding there gotcha interesting and i think I don't, I, just a fascinating field, so much opportunity, and it's just, it's accelerating. Like, I, I don't know if this is true, but I heard that it, there was some research firm or, or somebody had 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 a, a qubit stable for nine seconds, and I had to read it twice. I'm like, oh, they must have meant like nine nanoseconds. And it's like, no, nine actual regular on your digital watch seconds. Which That's true. Yeah, so one of the, one of the technologies used to build qubits, uh, the ion trap, method. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that's probably the technology they employed and yeah. what you're referring to. It can keep qubits coherent, maintaining the quantum properties, for an amazingly long time, uh, on the order of seconds. 
a, another technology, superconducting technology. Uh, it's it's on it is on the order of microseconds, so you would have been correct. The the trade-off is that the superconducting technology has operations which happen much faster, and the ion trap technology has operations which are slower. And and funny enough, it actually the the relative scale is remarkably similar. So you can you can get a few hundred operations in before the coherence decays. Um, so it's 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 actually funny the way it scales. Yeah. Um, both of the technologies are, of course, trying to increase the coherence time and decrease the operation time. Interesting. This is such a fascinating field. We could probably talk to you for another hour. Um, <laughs> definitely love to have you back on the show. Um, sure, any, a, anytime. A great first guest. Um, yeah, hopefully, thank you. Yeah, this has been awesome. I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you. This has been awesome. Uh, Audible is a sponsor of the show. Do you do audiobooks? Sometimes. Sometimes. Any recommendations? Oh, I'll have to give this some thought, but yes, I, I have done a few of them. All right. So while you're giving that some thought, I picked this book up. Um, this is an excellent book, Quantum Boost. And after reading, I'm only like halfway through it. It's actually a pretty good read. This, the amount of what I like about this is if you're not a quantum physicist and you're just kind of either an engineer or I think this is really geared towards business decision makers uh it explains um these technologies in a way that kind of makes sense like you know what's the difference between annealing versus photonic versus ion trap and all that there are paragraphs on that and it kind of talks about specific industry uses and it's like it's like after reading this i was extremely like enthused like wow this really is a real opportunity and um it's written by brian Lenahan, who hopefully will be on the show soon. I think Andy worked that out. And um, yeah, it's, 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 I think the one takeaway I would leave folks with, at least, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that we're at the, we're at the, the transistor was just invented stage. <laughs> we're kind of in maybe the mid to late 60s on this uh, in terms I of. I think that's a very good analogy. Yeah. Because we see that the, the core concept does work at some level. And now it's a matter of engineering and scaling it to uh to really be useful yeah um so, so yeah speaking of audible uh since we talked about brian green and string theory i see that his book the elegant universe talking about string theory is available on audible so i might recommend that to people awesome go to thedaydrivenbook.com and you'll get one free audible book on us if you get a subscription it helps support the the shows not just one show anymore and sure. um sure. where can folks find out more about you mark and uh kind of um Cambridge, uh, Cambridge Cam Quantum. Mm -hmm. y yeah, so I would first suggest they come to our website, cambridgequantum.com, and they can learn more about us and our activities there. And if they would like to email me, my email is mark.jackson at cambridgequantum.com. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show, and uh, we'll let the nice British lady and uh, do the end credits. Great. Awesome. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for listening to Impact Quantum. We know you're busy and we appreciate you listening to our podcast. But we have a favor to ask. Please rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to us. Of course, you have subscribed to us. Haven't you? Having high ratings and reviews helps us improve the quality of our show and rank us more favorably with the search algorithms. That means more people listen to us, spreading the joy. And... Can't the world use a little more joy these days? So, 
Go do your part to make the world just a little better and be sure to rate and review the show.